Thank you to Tracy, to the team. Man, that was a great way to wrap up our time this morning in music. Did you agree with that, ma'am? That was great. Thank you. Uh, Before I I jump in, just a couple things I'd like to say. First off, um, for those of you who have asked, yes, I am very well aware of how a certain college football game ended yesterday. Um, Actually, two of them. One I was kind kind of happy about, but the other one I was not. And for those of you who have made sure to remind me of that today, I just want to let you know there's a wonderful church just down the road. And they're about to start, and so uh, just leave your offering in our boxes on the way out, and they would love to have you. Um, The other part of that, too, is is Brad is making sure to let everybody know that uh, I'm struggling and that that you need to come and talk to me and make sure that I know how that game ended. Uh, If you do, in response to that, I'm going to make sure I give you his cell phone number so you can call him during the Chiefs game tonight and make sure that, you know, you check on him throughout the course of that game. Uh, you know, just want to make sure we're, we're staying across the board on that. So, um, Also, too, on a more serious note, I just wanted to let you all know, uh, or, or to, to tell you all a huge just thank you. Uh, last month was Pastor's Appreciation Month, and uh, last week on our desks and our offices, we were all presented with a, a good-sized basket from gifts from you all. Um, gift cards, just cards with with, uh, things written in them, uh, some small gifts. Uh, There were those chains that were put out front. Um, And I know that there were several of you who who, uh, wrote something kind on those chains. And I just want to let you know how much that I appreciated that. I know my wife appreciated that too. Um, And and I'm, I'm, I'm sure the rest of the staff felt the same way. So thank you for thanking us. Thank you for, for showing appreciation to us. That really did mean a lot. Uh, question for you as we start today, uh, let, let, let's play kind of what I like to call Bible honesty time. Uh, if I say this, I want to kind of know, you can, you can jot a note down here, what pops in your head. What's a command from the Bible you wish wasn't there? Okay? There's some awkwardness, but let me just say, there's always some that we wish weren't there, right? Like there's some verses or commands in the Bible that you're like, Man, God, really? Did you really have to put that one in there? Like maybe this one from Luke 17, uh, where it says, even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back saying, I repent, you must forgive them. You're like, that is my favorite verse. Man, somebody comes up and punches me seven times, but man, I'm sorry. I, you forgive them every time. Or maybe this one from Matthew chapter 5 says, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other one. You're like, man, that's the American spirit. That's what we do, Right? Or a few verses later, verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How many of you are praying for Raiders fans today? <laughs> Didn't get any hands in the 8 o'clock service either. I thought so. <laughs> one, okay, one person. Good, but you're like, man, that, I have highlighted that verse because it's my, I put it on my wall at home because it's my favorite verse in the Bible. Or ladies, this is probably your favorite one from uh, Ephesians chapter 5. Submit to your husbands, Period. <laughs> uh, we've got some conflict going on over here. I'm not going to address that this morning. but now, Obviously, yes, there's context around all of these passages. They're not just that sentence and that's it and that's all. But there are always some spots in the Bible that can be difficult to follow. What if I put this one on the screen? I'm curious if this one 
is difficult for you to follow. First Thessalonians chapter 5, it's actually three verses. Always be joyful, never stop praying, be thankful in all circumstances. You're like, well, well wait a minute, that's not, that's not that difficult. I mean, that's actually good. I would like to do those things. Okay, how many of you take these commands to heart and there's never a moment you're not joyful? That's good. There were some liars in the 8 o'clock service, so I'm glad you guys, you guys held up here. Or you pray, every word out of your mouth is prayer. Or you're able to be thankful all the time. Uh, we started this series last week called Going Gratitudinal because we like to remember the idea of gratitude and the idea of getting behind gratitude heading into this time of the year each year. And, and as, as I looked at this passage... The, the idea here to be thankful, uh, the, the Greek word here, which I'm going to come back to later in, in the service, the Greek word here that is translated be thankful is, is one word, and really I, I chose the New Living uh, Version here, but the other translations are more accurate to the text, and I'll explain why I chose this one in a second here. The actual literal translation of the Greek word is give thanks. It's the action. It's the act. But I stuck with this one in the New Living to be thankful because I like the idea behind it. Because give thanks is the act, but be thankful is the attitude. And at least for me anyway, I can't really do an act if I don't have the attitude first. For me, it's hard to give thanks if I'm not first thankful, if I'm not first being thankful. And I think that those two tie together, but sometimes we need that foundational idea. Brad talked about this last week with the idea of what gratitude is and where it comes from, but then how that becomes an act of gratitude after the fact. That's called thanksgiving. Timothy Keller's an author and a pastor. He had this great quote where he says, It's one thing to be grateful, it's another to give thanks. Gratitude is what you feel, thanksgiving is what you do. Again, we're heading into this time of thanksgiving. And so how do we get this spirit and this idea of not only being thankful, but giving thanks? And as Paul says in this, this, this passage, in this verse, and what our theme for this morning is, is not just to be thankful, but to be thankful, he says three words there, in all circumstances. That's the difficult part. I think most of us, at least at some times, have no issue being thankful or sharing gratitude. But how many of you you can say, well, I can do it at all times. I can do it in all circumstances. Maybe you can't. Maybe it's a struggle. And often we split these circumstances into two categories, good times and bad times. And we say, well, it's easy to follow God in the good times when everything's going well. Man, I, I love my job. I love my house. I've got a great car. I've got a great family. Everything's great. And I'm so thankful to God for that. But when it's a bad time, we say, well, it's just hard to be grateful. I disagree. Me personally, I find it sometimes easier to be grateful in bad times than in the extreme goods. In times of loss, I can reflect with gratitude on what I've lost. Uh, coming up here in a couple weeks, Thanksgiving Day last year, we lost my uncle, a very dear man in my life, outside of my dad and my grandpa, probably the most influential man I had in my life. I uh, just died suddenly on, on Thanksgiving Day last year. Friday, two days ago, was the 15th anniversary of losing my grandpa. Same situation, died suddenly. And the pain that I felt off of those, that, that I still feel, so in some cases 15 years later, I look back and think, I'm so grateful for those men. 
And even in the days following both of their passings, I was so grateful for them and grateful that I got to experience them in my lives. And, and when I look back, I was grateful for how, they, how they, they went like that. In a moment, they're, they're face-to-face with their creator. No suffering. I didn't have to watch that. And I found gratitude in those moments of heartbreak and pain. For me, though, there's a third category, and this is where I can struggle. It's not in the extreme good or the extreme bad circumstances. For me, sometimes gratitude is the most difficult in those in-between circumstances. In the everyday mundane, the everyday going about life, looking around going, well, I mean, I've got a job, I've got a house, I've got a car, I've got my family, but I mean, I wouldn't mind having a nicer house. I wish I had a better paying job. I wish I had a nicer car. And suddenly what happens when we do this, and, and if, if, if that's you, like, I'm not pointing a finger, I, I'm pointing at myself, because this is me. It's easy to start looking at what you don't have, and that keeps you from looking at what you do. And seeing where you haven't been given things, you lose sight of where you have been blessed. That, for me, is where I find the most difficult times of being grateful. It's not those extremes, it's the in-betweens. It's the everyday and the mundane. And, and so the question that we have to ask and answer today, when Paul says to be grateful in all circumstances, like that, that's the key phrase here, is how do we do that? How do we go about that? And, and the answer I'm going to give you today is probably the most Sunday school-based answer I could give you. If you know the joke, you know the joke. But the answer, how do we stay uh, grateful in all circumstances? It's simple and it's deep at the same time. We stay focused on God. For me, is what I have to do. I stay focused on God. Paul, in this, this, I, I keep saying verse, it's actually three verses, gives us three commands. And for me, when I look at the first two commands, it helps me with the third. He says to always be joyful. Again, any of you, you, you can say, I'm, there's never a time I'm not joyful. I can tell you, yesterday afternoon, I was not joyful. Okay? And before you judge me, I've seen some of you on Facebook during a Chiefs game. Okay? I'm amazed. There's a lot of Jayhawk stuff here today, and you probably don't normally see this unless there's a basketball game this time of year. Won a game yesterday. Joyful. Joyful. Okay? There are moments that we are not going to be joyful. And Paul understands that because the same Paul who says always be joyful wrote many times throughout his letters in the Bible of times where he was struggling and suffering with despair or struggling with suffering. Or, or he's, writing, in fact, he's writing this to the Thessalonians who are persecuted. It's hard to be joyful when you're being persecuted. But he says always do it. And what he's saying here is joy is ultimately a decision you make. It's ultimately something that you have to decide. Yesterday, at some point, I had to tell myself, I can continue to be in a bad mood all day, or I can, I can find joy in something. We're this way no matter how big or small the situation is. So he says, always be joyful. And then he says to never stop praying. Now, does that mean we walk around with our head bowed and our eyes closed, muttering prayers all the time? No, that's not what that means. What he's meaning with this is always be in the spirit and the attitude of prayer. Uh, For me, sometimes that's as simple as just saying, God, be with me in this next moment. Maybe maybe it means I'm going to Walmart, where I know it's hard to be joyful. (laughs) Okay? 
there's a lot of times I go to Walmart, I, I'm like, man, God, you really want me to be in ministry and try to, try to save as many of these people as I can? Like it's a test of my, <laughs> my calling sometimes to go to stores like that. So what do I pray? God, please help me. Let my words be helpful to somebody else. Let my reactions and my responses not be rude, not be short. Like just let people see you through me. Maybe it's something that simple. It's not this overly spiritual thing. It's not walking around, you know, saying, God bless that person and bless. No, no, no. Just put me in an attitude where I'm focused on what God is doing through people. That's what it means to always be praying. So Paul says, always be joyful, always be praying. That's going to help with gratitude. And Paul comes back to this idea several times. He doesn't just say it this one time about gratitude and moves on. In Ephesians chapter 5, he's, he's saying all these words about what it means to live in the kingdom of God and live in community with one another in the kingdom. And towards the end of that, he says this in, in verse 18, Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, seeing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, we come back to this idea of gratitude. And we're coming up on Thanksgiving, where we sit down and we start maybe making lists of what we're grateful for. We did this with our girls at dinner the other night. Uh, we, we asked them, we said, what's something you're grateful for? And Amelie, our, our seven-year-old, she wants to go first. And she goes, I'll go. I don't know. <laughs> because she likes to let somebody else answer. And they go, oh, yeah, I'm grateful for that. I'm also grateful for that. Like, like, she's super grateful, but in the moment, she freezes. Elsie, she, my nine-year-old, she's like, well, I'll go. And she, she mentions what she's grateful for. And then something else, and then something else. And I'm like, good grief, are you a preacher's kid or something? Like, wrap this up. Are you going to pass a collection plate? I mean, what's happening? <laughs> you know, like, the food's getting cold. Elsie, come on. Like, I'm, I'm grateful for the hot food that's being wasted. Because, I mean, come on. Let's... I wasn't upset with her. I loved seeing the words that she came up with, and it wasn't little things. She's grateful for her family around her. She's grateful for her home that she has. She's grateful for her school that she was stressed beyond measure about, that she had real anxiety about when we moved here. She's grateful that she's found friends, that she was terrified to leave in Oregon. And I see that in her. And it just makes my heart swell to think she's starting to get it because I didn't get it at nine years old. I, I certainly didn't. I barely get it now at 39 years old. But the idea that she's grateful, and we, we make those lists. If you've been following me on Facebook, many of you do, I've been trying to list something every day. And, and, and I'm intentionally not putting Jesus or my salvation on there, because that's kind of a cop-out. I want to come up with, with things. I want to come up with people and moments and experiences that have led me to where I am. But when you're making your list of what you're grateful for, how often is God on that list? And I don't just mean God for what he's done. Are you grateful for God for who he is at his very basic core? Because for me, that helps me to center and focus my gratitude, is getting back to the core of who God is. And I realize I could talk for hours about just this topic alone. There's entire volumes of books written on just who God is. But if you will, I just want to today 
take a moment and, and just list a couple of ideas for me where I center my gratitude towards God. And, and when I do that, it helps me to center my gratitude in all circumstances, in all things, and in all times. So my first thing I'm grateful for, I'm grateful for God's love. I'm grateful for his love. We read about this especially through the Psalms. Psalm 107 says, Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. And this verse in some phraseology is repeated so many times throughout the Psalms. It just comes back to this idea, give thanks to the Lord for he's good. His love endures forever. And what I love about that idea of his love enduring is that when we think about God, there's this idea that God doesn't love, God is love. It's like saying the river is wet. No, the river's not wet, the river's water. That's what makes things wet. And the river has a source have, have any of you seen the source of a river? It's kind of fascinating. In Colorado, one time I got to see the source of the Rio Grande. You know, this amazing river that carves the border between our, our country and Mexico. And it comes out of the side of a mountain like a trickle. And it, it goes, and, and I got to see the beginning of the Arkansas River, which being from Oklahoma is important to us. It's a major uh, avenue of commerce for the state of Oklahoma. It just kind of comes up out of the ground in central Colorado. And then it becomes this mighty river that, that formed canyons over the course of time and then flows lazily through my state before meeting up with the Mississippi River. Rivers aren't wet. Rivers are water. God doesn't just give love. He is the source of love. One of the first verses I ever remember memorizing was from 1 John chapter 4. It says, love one another because God is love. And we see that. The most famous, I think the most famous quote of all time is John 3, 16. And what's it say? For God, what? Loved the world. He so loved the world that he did what? He gave his one and only son. Who's somebody for you that you love so much, you say, I would do anything for this person. There's no price tag too big. There's no task too tall. I would do whatever I was physically able to do and then some for this person. I saw a Facebook uh, meme the other day that my uncle had shared. It said, would, if somebody offered you $250,000 for your dog, would you take it? And people are like, oh, no. I'm like, I like my dog, but not that much. You know, I can go buy another dog and then have, have a little change left over. Or like that phrase, uh, I've seen one that says, would you slap your mother for a million bucks? And I'm like, sorry, Kathleen, I love you, but I mean, it's a million dollars we're talking about. Like, there's a price tag, right? But no, deep down, there's not a price tag I wouldn't put to, to do something for her or for my own kids or for my wife or, or whatever. I would do whatever I was able to do for them. And that's what God did for you. He sent his son to die on the cross for you. And think about what his love gives us. Because of the love of God, we have so many things. We have grace that's been given to us. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that he thanks God uh, for the, the Corinthian people because of the grace that has been given to them through Jesus. Grace is unmerited favor. Okay, the, the best way to describe grace is you're given something that you cannot possibly ever earn or deserve. That's why you're saved, because of the grace of God. If you've accepted him as your savior, it's through his grace. Nothing you could ever do will be good enough, but he gives it to you anyway. 
That's the grace that we have through the love of God. And because we've received that grace, we can extend mercy to others. We can extend grace to others. We can be grateful for others even if they don't deserve our gratitude because we were treated the same way by God. Because of his love, we also have restoration. A restoration is bringing us back to the Father. It's bringing us back into that loving relationship with him. And there's such a powerful uh, illustration of this in Romans chapter 3. If you're ever curious what Jesus did for you on the cross, and exactly the depths of what he did for you on the cross, you look at Romans chapter 3. There's three verses starting in verse 23. And I'm just going to read them to you. They're not on the screens, but it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Verse 25 says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. There are three words in this passage that break down what God did on the cross, what Jesus did on the cross for you. The first is the word justified. That's a legal term. It means you're set free from the guilt that you have incurred. Like the judge declares you guilty, but the punishment was taken by Jesus. He took that on himself. There's the word redeemed or redemption. That word is actually an illustration, an image of slavery. And the idea that a person is purchased as a slave, but the one who purchased them then immediately sets them free. And that's what Jesus did for us. We were slaves to sin, we were bound to sin, and he set us free. And the third is the word uh, atonement or a sacrifice of atonement, or there's a good Bible college word you find in some translations, the word propitiation. And that's the idea that we are set free from the wrath of God. That's a topic that we don't like to talk about too much, that God is this wonderful, loving God, so how could he have wrath? But a just God who holds us accountable to sin must have wrath. You can't have one without the other. But through that atoning sacrifice, we are released from the wrath of God. He took that on, on Jesus, and we, we aren't held to that. That's the love of God that gives us restoration. But the love of God also gives us healing. We're healed through his, his love. In Isaiah 53, this, this wonderful passage that for me, I always, I always read this or we sang this when I was a kid when we took communion. But in Isaiah 53, it says, He was despised and rejected by mankind. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds were healed. Jesus, when he heals you, it's not just simply a healing. It's much more than that. Mark chapter 1, there's a story of Jesus healing a leper. And yes, he healed him physically, but because he healed him physically, he also healed him socially because the lepers were outcasts. And now he's no longer a leper. He's no longer an outcast. He was brought into the, the, the family of the people. He was brought into the community. And the same thing works with us. When he heals you, when he heals your story, he takes the brokenness that separates you from God and he brings that back into the kingdom. Now you're a part of the kingdom. It's not just a physical healing. It's much bigger than that. That's the healing that comes through the love of Jesus. And it's a divine healing that we fight with divine weapons. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul has these words to say. He says, for though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. A few years ago, uh, <clears throat> we were putting in this discipleship program 
at the church I was at, and we went down to uh, Southern California. We also went up to Portland to watch what they call these, these celebration services. And maybe you've seen something like this. They would do cardboard confessions is what they call them, or cardboard testimonials. And they would walk up on, 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 on the cardboard, they would hold it up, and it would, it would give like basically the world's description of them. And somebody would have something that said like, my husband abandoned me. I hate the church. I, I, was, I was always the outcast. I'm an addict. But they flipped the sign over. And where it said, my husband abandoned me, but God took me in. I was an addict, but now I'm free. I hated the church. Now I'm a part of the family. I was an outcast. Now I belong. And it's the idea that God rewrites your story. He doesn't just heal you. He rewrites your story. And the labels that describe you don't exist anymore. The only label that matters is the label child of God or friend of God. That is what we get through the love of Jesus, through the love of God. Paul says in 1 Timothy that through Jesus we have strength. How grateful are you that God loves you so much? He's shown you grace. He's shown you restoration. He's shown you healing. For me, that helps me through all of the circumstances of life. My second thing I'm grateful for when it comes to God, I'm grateful for his majesty. This is a bigger topic. How often do you stop and step back and you think about God and you just think about how big he is and how majestic and wonderful and powerful he is. One of the most vivid images in the Bible for me is in Revelation chapter 1, where the apostle John, now 60 years later, after Jesus has left the earth, John is probably around 90 years old at this point. John, who followed Jesus every day, who, who walked with him, who saw miracle after miracle, is exiled on an island called Patmos in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, living out the last few days of his life. And John, while he's there on a Sunday morning while he's worshiping, he hears a voice that he doesn't recognize. And here's what he says in Revelation 1. He says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in its brilliance, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John is the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's the disciple who laid across Jesus' chest during the Last Supper. He's the disciple who ran to the tomb to see that he wasn't there, and he doesn't recognize this Jesus. Because this isn't the same Jesus that he remembers. And let me just tell you something, church. I don't know what image of Jesus pops into your head when, when you think of him. Is it the picture that you know, all of our grandparents had on their wall when we were kids that hung in the dining room? Is, is it precious moments Jesus? Is it flannel graph Jesus? You kids from the 80s and 70s know what I'm talking about. Is it, is it the let the little children come to me Jesus? Those are all valid. 
good pictures of Jesus. That is not the Jesus that John is seeing. He is not seeing warm and cuddly and friendly Jesus. He is seeing the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he is ready to roar. He is seeing the Jesus who will judge the world one day. The Jesus who will then reign and rule over the world one day. That is who he is seeing. And John's only response, this man who fell across the chest of Jesus, his only response is to fall on his face in front of him. Have you had one of those moments? Can I just tell you something? Whatever you think of Jesus, whatever your imagination comes up with or your heart comes up with when you think of Jesus, whatever it is, you're underestimating him. I can promise you that. There is no possible way our minds can be wrapped around the grandeur and the splendor and the majesty of who he truly is. And when we see him, all we can do is fall as though dead. Several years ago, there was a family on vacation in New England. And they went to this, they were in this small town in New England and and. and this town's claim to fame was it was kind of a retreat or a getaway for some celebrities. And one in particular who was known to retreat there was the great actor Paul Newman. And so uh, the, the mom of this family one day, her kids were out playing at the park, her husband was out fishing, and she decided she was going to go to the local ice cream parlor and, and get an ice cream cone. So she goes in and she orders an ice cream cone. And as she's waiting on the clerk to bring her her, her chocolate ice cream cone, the doorbell dings, and guess who walks through? None other than Paul Newman. And this is like her boyhood idol. And this woman is in her late 40s and happily married, and suddenly she's a teenage girl at a Beatles concert. She does not know what to do with herself. Awestruck. And especially as he walks in, there's not many people in there, and he looks at her, and those blue eyes lock on with hers, and she is done. He speaks to her, he pats her on the shoulder, and she can just giggle and mutter something in response, trying to keep it together, trying to look like an adult, trying not to fangirl. She gets it all together and and goes on about her day, and she gets to the car after she got the change from the clerk. And After she's in the car for about a minute, it finally dawns on her, I didn't get my ice cream cone. And she's embarrassed because of all people that she could see that she just did something silly in front of. It's Paul Newman. So after a minute, she gathers herself and she walks back in. And she's like, okay, he's just a man. I can talk to him. She walks back in and he's still standing at the counter and the clerk isn't there. He'd stepped in the back and she looks around and and Paul Newman looks at her and she goes, "Uh, did you forget something? And she said, yeah, when the clerk gave me my, my change, he didn't give me my ice cream cone. And he said, well, yes, ma'am, he did, and you put it in your purse with your change. <laughs> when is the last time you locked eyes with God and completely lost the ability to function? You completely lost ability of your faculties. When is the last time that you did this? We talk about God, the loving Father, and that he is. We talk about God, the wonderful counselor, and that he is. But folks, sometimes I think it's too easy for us to just pretend God is sitting on a cloud just watching the world go by saying, oh, do that, don't do that. We think about that and we forget who he really is. 
the God who thought the world into existence and spoke everything to come to be. The God with that kind of power. But we just take him and his church flippantly sometimes. We take him for granted. We lose sight of what God said to Moses one day that I heard one of my professors in Bible college repeat all the time. A guy we called Griff who would tell us over and over, sometimes you've got to just take off your shoes and remember you're standing on holy ground. Just like God said to Moses when he approached the burning bush, don't come any further because where you're about to come, you don't deserve to get to stand. I don't care if you're Moses. I don't care who you are. I'm God and I'm holy. Take off your shoes, you're coming to holy ground. And we think, well, it's not that big of a deal to just take it flippantly. He's God, he'll forgive us. There's some spots in the Bible where that didn't happen. Like in 2 Samuel where a man named Uzzah reached up to try to fix the the, the Ark of the Covenant and God struck him down because he said, don't touch my Ark. You're not holy enough to touch my Ark. Or in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul's giving instructions on communion. And we read those often and we think that's just a way to help get our minds right for communion. But Paul's giving those instructions because people were not doing it the right way. They were misusing it. They were taking it for granted, and God struck them down. Don't misuse who I am, he says. Remember that he is holy. It's easy to read those stories and to think that. and think, Man, God, sometimes you can just be a jerk. Like you're supposed to be the all-loving God, and you know I'm a flawed person. God isn't mean and he isn't strict. He is holy. That means he is set apart and set above and it's on us to try to get to him. It's on us to try to remember that because he came to us. He sent his son for us. And and the God who spoke every single thing into existence and everything into being, of all the creation that he chose to make, he chose us to bear his image. Humans, that's who he chose. And because of that, folks, every ounce of gratitude that we can muster should go to him. He deserves everything that we can give him and more. But let me just tell you this warning. Never approach his throne lightly. There are some times, and maybe you're like me, I was raised in a more charismatic church where we talked about this so much that it started to lose its emphasis a little bit. There are times that I actually need to do this to give myself the reminder, and maybe you do too, where before I pray, I take my shoes off, and I get on my face, not because God's going to hear my prayer any better. He can hear my prayer as I'm driving down the road, the same as if I'm in a room by myself, the same as if I'm in this room with several hundred people. But for me, I need the reminder that I'm on holy ground And so sometimes I need to take my shoes off. I need to hit my face before I even begin to think about going to him. Because I'm on holy ground. That's how majestic and immense and wonderful God is. That's how powerful he is. Are you grateful for that? Are you grateful for who he is? And for for me, that, that helps to reset me. But because of that, because of his majesty, and because of his love, I am also grateful for the hope that we have in him. For that hope that is found in him. Paul talks about hope often, and in Colossians chapter 1, he starts off his letter this way. He says, we thank 
God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of uh, the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard the true message of the gospel. You get that? He says the faith and love they have come from the hope they have in him. That hope is something that we can't define and come up with on our own because it's the hope that comes from the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that God not only loves you, but God created you, he's pursuing you, and he died on the cross for you. God did everything for you, and that hope that we have in him brings us peace. It gives us peace. We think about peace, and and I say, man, if you could have peace, what would it look like? I can just about guarantee for some of you, or for most of you, peace means a removal of something. Something that's causing conflict, or causing strife, or causing stress. You want to remove that from your life so that you can have peace. Because that's what we define peace as. If two countries are at war, when they stop war, we remove that conflict, they find peace, right? Two people are at odds when they they put their hands down and they, they talk it out, they can have peace because we've removed that conflict. Romans 5 breaks it down differently. Romans 5 breaks it down in a way that through, through our suffering, through our hard times, we find perseverance, and that perseverance leads to hope, and that hope leads to peace. And it's not the removal that Paul talks about there of anything. We find peace because of an addition. We find peace because we're put back together with the God who created us and loves us and pursues us and died on the cross for us. So it's not a removal of anything, it's, it's a completion. That's peace in God, and that's peace that comes from the hope that we have in him. It's peace that we can have in the midst of chaos and craziness. I don't know about you, I, I look around our world, I don't think that the chaos and the craziness is going to go away, much less go away. It's, it's not going to slow down or stop anytime soon. It's just going to ramp up. And the hope that we have brings us victory. That's the good part of this. I'm reminded of this often, but I'm especially reminded of this every two years. Every even year in particular. Every election cycle. Every election cycle at every level of government. When we hear people who promise victory, they promise hope, they promise all of these things. And we know they're just as flawed as we are, so they can't possibly deliver on those promises. But what happens every time we have an election cycle, we have about half of our country who gets behind whoever won and half the country who thinks it's gloom and doom and darkness and depression and despair from moving forward. I know what's going on in our world. I don't have to like it. But for me, I don't have to stress about it because my hope is not in a politician or a leader on this planet. My hope is not on anything made by the hands of man. My hope is in the God who spoke the world into existence and his kingdom. And it always will be. And I'm able to cling to that more. I know the world is trending in a difficult direction. I'm coming up on 40 years old this next summer. I don't know how long God's going to leave me on this planet. I don't know what percentage of my life I've already lived. For you, I don't know what percentage of your life you've already lived. But I can tell you this, whatever percentage I've lived or you've lived, however long it winds up being, it is 
not even a blip on the eternal radar of our lives, on the eternal timeline of our lives. Our time on this earth is not even going to show up. It's going to be such a tiny, minuscule blip. And so what seems hard and overbearing now in the grand scheme of things is not a big deal because we weren't made for this world. We were made for an eternal kingdom with a divine, majestic, loving God. That's where I find my hope. That's where I get through all of this. And yes, I know things seem difficult right now. I I felt this yesterday during the the OU game. Some of you might feel this tonight during the Chiefs game. I don't know what that game is going to look like. I can tell you this, yesterday during that game, I'm not one of these that if I know the end result of the game, I'm not going to go home and watch it. Like, I just can't do that. You know, I'll just skip forward to the end. (laughs) But as I'm watching that game, and if, if you watched it, I mean, it was just... OU was a no-show. Right? My Sooners were a no-show in this game. And if somebody had said, hey, I know Baylor's up by, by 13 right now in the third quarter, but guess what? OU scores three touchdowns in the last four minutes, and they win the game by two touchdowns. They, they win it going away. I'm going to watch that third and fourth quarter, and I probably wouldn't have thrown things, not to say that I did or didn't. I'm not going to go any further with that. I wouldn't have stressed because I would have known it's all right. This is not good right now. I don't like this right now, but I know what happens in the end. And I know that we not only win the game, we win it triumphantly. Folks, our world is difficult right now. Our world is becoming antagonistic to the church and to faith. One of my pastors, I, I used to always say, we're, we're no longer on the, the, the home team. We're the underdog now. I know that. It's becoming increasingly difficult and frustrating to live a life of faith. But guess what? I've read the end of the book. (laughs) We win. God wins. And if we're on his team, we win too. So it doesn't matter what things look like right now. Because the hope that we have in him is the hope and the assurance and the knowledge of what's going to happen in the end. So if you're struggling right now, turn your eyes to him. If it's difficult right now, turn your eyes to him. I don't want to pretend that it's not difficult. It is. But in the grand scheme of things, folks, turn your eyes to him. If gratitude seems hard, and I know that it can at times, I know that there are moments that are overbearing and, and just you just feel crushed, or moments that you kind of feel like, what's the point of all this? We kind of get that, you know, whatever mentality that so many of us had in the 90s. If that's you, step back, get a new perspective, focus on God, because it's through him that we will find gratitude in all circumstances. And so I'm going to give you a quick takeaway, and it's simple, Thanksgiving's coming up, you might be doing this anyway, make a list of what you're grateful for, and as you make that list, Think back to how God works through every single one of those things on your list. That's what I'm doing on my my daily Facebook post, is I'm thinking how God has worked through every one of those. I'm keeping him there. I'm keeping that perspective there. And in just a second, we're going to step into a time of communion. And I want to illustrate something for you as we do. Because for me to get into this mindset and this attitude of gratitude, of being grateful, so that I can then give thanks. 
That's where it starts. It's rooted and grounded in him. We're going to take communion at this time, but as we do, I want to go back to what I started off with. When I mentioned that Greek word for give thanks or be thankful, this is what the word looks like. It's one word that we translate to two in English. The word uh, eucharisteo. And you don't have to be Bible students or Greek scholars to see this word. And for many of you, another word pops immediately into your head. Eucharistero. We get our word Eucharist from this. And the Eucharist is tied to our time of communion. So as, as we get ready to take this in just a moment, I want to start right here. I don't do communion meditations most weeks here. But every time I, I have, I tell people and remind people, we take communion every week. It is not tradition. It is not habit. It is not ritual. We take it every single week here so that we can make sure we are being reminded of why, why we have the love of God. So that we can make sure that we are reminded why we, res- or how we respond by giving thanks. So as we pause here in just a moment to take communion, as we come to this time with that that cup that represents the body and the blood of Jesus, start by giving thanks to him, by, by finding gratitude rooted in the cross of Jesus. Let's pray. God, we are so, so thankful. God, beyond ways we can even express, we are thankful for what Jesus has done for us for that work on the cross that justified us, that redeemed us, that saved us from your wrath. That grace that we have. God, we're thankful for just who you are. God, I pray that we would not lose sight of that. We would not approach your throne flippantly or lightly. And God, as we go about our days, Lord, you would keep that reminder on our hearts that our gratitude starts with you and that through you, God, no matter what this world throws at us, any circumstance, we can be grateful for you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.